0: Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Coleman's podcast. I'm Seamus Branagh here with Quentin Joyce. Joining us today to talk about COVID, music, and his new book is expert immunologist, Professor Luke O'Neill.
1: In recent months, he's become one of the most
0: recognisable figures in the country for his unrivaled knowledge of vaccines, and we're delighted to welcome him to the podcast today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Hi, Professor. Uh, How are you? Hi, Seamus, how's it going? Um, Good, thanks. Um, First off, just like to say a massive thank you for coming on the Coleman's podcast today. It's great to have you on.
2: No problem. Very happy to help.
0: Um, So when you first heard of COVID-19, is this what you imagined, you know, global pandemic, lockdown, or did you imagine it would just pass over like any other virus?
2: Yeah, I was shocked, Seamus. I first came across it on January the 6th last year, just over a year ago, in in a little article in in a science magazine, you know, it was a paragraph this long and it said, oh, there's a new virus. It probably will be okay because there was no evidence of human to human transmission at that time, you know. And then from that moment on it got worse and worse and worse. And the, the big surprise was it wasn't like SARS. So it's in the same family. The virus is in the same family as SARS. And SARS was easier because it's only you spread with symptoms. In other words, you're coughing and you're sick and you spread it. This one you spread with no symptoms, and that's why it took off. And none of us expected that to happen. That's the main reason actually why it's so so difficult in a sense, this business of spreading without symptoms, you know.
0: And uh, what do you think are the chances of another pandemic, possibly with a higher mortality rate occurring in the future?
2: Yeah, it's hard to predict. There's always, I mean, I've i been meeting virologists uh, over the years and I always warn you there's a pandemic coming. And we would go, oh, there's no chance of that. And we try to avoid them, right? Really, because they were always, you know, doom merchants. But uh, so it's hard to predict. I mean, the worry is that these coronaviruses are quite common in other species like bats and so on, you know. And then there's a risk of one more jumping now into humans, but it's almost impossible to predict. It's unlikely to be um, really severe because viruses want to keep you alive, you see, because they, they eat your lunch effectively, is a great phrase I've used. So in other words, if a virus kills its host, that's bad for the virus usually. So most viruses don't do that. So, I mean, mind you, I haven't said that MERS is in the family and that's 35% mortality, which is high. But that was easy to get rid of, because obviously, again, it was, it was based on symptoms alone. But th- these are the kinds of scientific questions that were kind of, um, Addressing all the time. Of course, nobody wants another pandemic, do we? Let's face it. Uh, one good part of that would be I know there's companies developing ways to block any coronavirus. So if a new one did jump, we'd have a quicker way to treat it. Really, at the idea. So that gives us a bit of hope. If there wasn't another pandemic, we could put the fire out more quickly.
3: And just extending on that, do you think the government and the HSE will learn much from this pandemic to prepare the country for future ones, or? think You'd it'll just so. happen repeat
2: it hope so probably wouldn't you i mean what, what's the definition of insanity if you, if you keep doing things the same thing, same time and without, without you know whatever the word is you know uh, and hoping for the better outcome um i think the world will learn for a start and we'll be part of that you see so this is the biggest shock in 100 years or so all of us will date our lives pre and post this period watch when you're in your 90s product i, I predict you'll live that long you look pretty healthy You'll be going on, did you know what happened in the year 2020, 2021? You won't believe it to your grandkids, you know? Because it's going to be really, really dramatic in all our lives for, for decades. We, we saw that with the 1918 pandemic, you know, the last big one. My, my father was um, born when that ended, but he always spoke about it. His mother would have told him about it, you know? So, so now what did we learn? Well, one good thing is we can deploy vaccines very quickly. So if there is a new one, we can make a vaccine using the same technology it should work, you see public health measures you know i think we're hopefully we learn about how the world is badly divided even more you know because it's the vulnerable who've been affected most of all not not just through illness but through poverty and so on so we can dream can't we probably i I hope we do learn from it
3: let's hope so let's hope so um just think even in such an event that ireland would almost be able to have its own ppe or be able to sustain ourselves like because we have a couple hand sanitizer manufacturers and other gear, but we were still very reliant on kind of foreign sources to get things into the country that we lacked.
2: It will take a determination. I mean, once the, once a crisis goes away, we're all trying to forget it, aren't we? You know, in life, it seems to be the case. So I think the way to think of it is, you know, after world war II, there was a massive nuclear deterrent That was about preventing another war. In other words, all, in fact, most, Wars end up with a response that builds up the army just in case there'll be another attack, you see. Ireland famously built all these Martello towers just in case Napoleon arrived. He never arrived, you know. <laughs> they spent a fortune on those towers. So, in other words, we have to see investment now, don't we? Into the future. It's as if you're, you're trying you're insuring yourself against the next one by investing in the very things you've mentioned, you know, and all those strategies. Now, whether Ireland can act independently, we are in the EU, remember, so that's a useful thing. Anything should really be EU-wide in a sense. But then we could have local strengths in this regard. Ireland uh, had very bad numbers in public health compared to other European countries. And that's the one thing you need in a pandemic is lots of public health doctors. So I suspect there will be a lot more of those into the future to help us should another pandemic emerge.
1: Um, Just kind of as an an extension of what Padraig said there, would you say that our politicians have been quite hypocritical Because before the pandemic, they were they were struggling to find funds to deal with a lot of public health issues, such as people on trolleys, overcrowding in hospitals, and uh, just general downgrading of hospitals, not being able to have the right equipment. Whereas now in the pandemic, funds have seemingly appeared out of nowhere to treat this as effectively as possible. You know, would you say that's quite hypocritical of them?
2: Oh, I wouldn't use the word hypocrisy. Is he po- I'd never be a politician. Would you, James? It's a very hard job, you know. I mean, they're trying to balance many things, aren't they? And um, it's tough for them. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to defend them either. It's good for us to criticise them. And they want they want that, I suppose, in a dem- democracy. Um, I think Ireland, it, the health service has suffered in all kinds of ways, really. You know, for all... I mean, it, it's a very complicated thing to run, remember. And there's always criticism of it, isn't there? And you're quite right. I mean, the trolleys in hospitals was the flu outbreaks every year. And that could have been handled better, maybe. So... I think, um, of course, what's happened now is that they're diverting money into this, let's put it that way, because they have to. You know, I mean, the, the mission one of the government is to stop its people dying, let's face it, and to look after the citizens of the country. So they divert loads of resources into it. Is that diverted from somewhere else? Can they get, uh, you know, money from somewhere? I mean, I think the, the, the big question we now have is how do we pay for all this into the future? And of course, one fear you, we would have is like a massive taxation hikes to try and pay for what's happened. That's a matter for economists to sort out i suppose so i wouldn't i wouldn't quite use hypocrisy i do think they they are a bit disingenuous maybe sometimes i mean you know they say they're supporting things and they aren't and they thought we've known about these problems and didn't act on them you know so it's it's, it's a running battle isn't it let's face it the funding of health
1: and so we've obviously we've seen the rollout of vaccines quite recently from companies such as pfizer moderna astrazeneca could you maybe give us uh, a brief idea of what the differences between each vaccine is from each of the different companies?
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's my area. So I'm, I'm, well, I'm well versed on this, thankfully. So because I'm an immunologist, as you probably know. So there's, there's four different types of vaccine anyway. Like Before COVID happened, there were four classes of vaccines, different ways to do it. You know what I mean? And, and each of those, some in polio, some in flu, some in measles, they're all slightly different. And what's happened, of course, is drug companies have now got behind those four. And each drug company is a slightly different one. You know, like one class of vaccines called the RNA vaccines, and that's made by Pfizer and Moderna. That's the recipe. Anybody in biology will know this Help. That's the recipe to make the protein. And you inject the RNA into your muscle and you make the spike protein. They, they decided initially to go after one piece of the virus, the spike part, because the spike sticks into your lungs and now infects you, you know. And of course, your immune system will make antibodies to mask the spike and stop infection. So it's a sensible thing to go after the spike. And RNA is one way to do it. A second way is to use DNA, and that's the AstraZeneca vaccine. That goes on a, a vector, it's a carrier. They're actually using a chimpanzee virus, amazingly, that they've inactivated. They stick in the gene for the spike. That goes into the muscle, that makes the RNA, and the RNA makes the protein. And uh, Johnson & Johnson is similar. Uh, the Sputnik V, that's a similar one as well. They're, they're all DNA-based vaccines. And then you've got, of course, the spike itself, the protein, that's Novavax. And we're very happy with them because they published results on Friday showing great efficacy with that. So that was that's the third approach that was used, you see. The fourth approach is to use what's called whole inactivated virus. So you take the entire virus now, right? And you inactivate it, either with a chemical or by mutation, And that's the vaccine. That's the Sinopharm vaccine. The Chinese have that. Uh, there's one being made in Europe uh, called Navalny, I think is the name of the company. They're making a, a whole inactivated version. So in other words, There's different types of vaccines, and they're all being deployed. And one question we now have is, will one be better than the other? There's a chance of that. Some of the efficacy numbers suggest think, is a bit less than the other one, say, for example. Um, We do know that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single shot. That's much better than two because it's more logistically uh, feasible, you know. And then remember as well, Jamie, two vaccines have failed, Merck and Sanofi, two of the biggest vaccine companies in the world. They failed. So this wasn't a slam dunk of any means, you know, we got a bit lucky in a way with the ones that have worked. So, so it's been very much a work in progress and we're delighted with ourselves because they all might have, been, you know, <laughs> we were in a very bad place then. We? So we're very happy now that we have, uh, I think there's about nine vaccines now, if you look at them all, that are showing good efficacy against this virus. So it's a great result for science, really. Right?
1: And and even, even looking at the different types of vaccines, I wanted to take focus on the, the mRNA type in yeah. particular. And, um, and given that the the two mRNA-based vaccines that we've seen right now, they're very new technology. You know, they're they're quite, not experimental, but yeah. they're obviously, they're very new. Um, could there be any long-term unexpected side effects that we could see from them, such as an autoimmune type of yeah. issue?
2: Now, that's a very important question, Jamie. And we're all over that one, of course, because now now what's inclined to happen here is, uh, when a vaccine is tested, you do two months of safety. And that's mandated by the FDA and the agencies, and that's sufficient, you see. So if you get if you don't get a safety problem in two months, that's a good predictor that it'll be long-term safety. Now you don't know, because as you have correctly said, it's a new vaccine, you see. But we're, we're confident that given RNA vaccines in the past, none were approved. Uh, this is the first, that Pfizer them was the first one. They have long-term safety data in smaller numbers, and it seems, it's safe. You know, So, but then again, you can't be 100% sure, but it's a risk worth taking because you need a vaccine. To stop the infection, which is definitely going to harm you. You see, so it's always that balance between risk and and reward, you know. But it's but they are looking at it extremely closely, and so far so good. I think that Pfizer vaccine's now been in over 20 million people, if not more, and no signs of any safety signal, you know. And we're, in, we're we're three months out now, so I'm confident there shouldn't be a problem. Although it's a very important thing to watch for, and it's called pharmacovigilance, and and they're keeping a very close eye on that very question.
4: So um, coming off of this, um, will the virus ever be completely eradicated if vaccinated people can still carry the virus?
2: Yeah, that's the big question. So, so what we think is going to happen, I'll give you one possibility now, which is not unreasonable. It is based on modelling and predictions, but it's reasonably good. And several people have now, several uh, mathematician, epidemiologists have agreed on this. So, So once we vaccinate all the vulnerable, and the people who are at risk of dying. And that means the older people over 60s, people with diseases like, you know, heart disease and COPD, the lungs, these are all risk factors. The death rate plummets, okay, and that's predictable. And they reckon by April or May time, in Ireland, we'll have like a 98% decrease in deaths and then back up into hospital, ICU, all the rest of it. So suddenly this becomes a less fearful disease, you see. Now, as you correctly say, maybe vaccines don't stop transmission. So there's a risk of people unvaccinated getting infected still. And of course, we've only vaccinated, say, 700,000 people at that stage. We've got to get to about 80% vaccination. That's the goal. Once you get to that level of vaccination, then the virus is almost beaten because it's got very few hosts to spread in. And it's the numbers game. It's a statistical thing. So once you get to 80%, the virus definitely begins to go away. It'll still burn away. I mean, it might Prop up every winter. There might be a tiny outbreak here and there, you know. So what we do next then is, every winter we vaccinate the vulnerable. We also vaccinate children because they will build up immunity then in their lifetime, and you stop vaccinating everybody else because the fact the virus has gone away to all intents and purposes, you know. So the future will be like the flu. Now it's a different disease. The flu has got different features, but in terms of the protocol that we'll use, it won't be that dissimilar to flu. New strains might come up like flu as well, and again we'll bring in vaccines every year for those strains. And what happens is it becomes endemic and you'll hear the odd outbreak of COVID-19 somewhere in the world. Oh, I remember that, you know, but it won't be so, so devastating as to have this massive pandemic. It becomes endemic is the word. Endemic means it's burning away at a low level in the population. And that, that's what the future, that's a reasonable sort of vista ahead of us now for this virus. Well, science has clearly
1: uh, become a huge part of the world nowadays. What improvements do you think could be made to schools uh, so that more teenagers could be interested in science?
2: Well, you should be, Matt, you should be interested already. I mean, we're, we're blowing your minds in the media every bloody day. What do you think I'm doing every day? <laughs> um, I think, um, well, uh, to be honest, Ireland's great. I mean, there's the great cohort of science teachers, you know. And it's strange, I'm president of the Irish Science Teachers Association. I was asked to do that, and I said that before COVID. And I went to well, their meetings, you know. So we've got a great set of science teachers. They're doing a great job teaching science to, to pupils like yourselves. I mentioned some of you guys are doing science or, or biology, chemistry, physics. So it's really good, I think, anyway. um, What would you change? I think the more science we have in the media, the better. And, and one thing COVID's done is improve that, you know. I used to be on the radio before COVID, and famously, about six months ago, I'm on with Pat Kenny News Talk, and someone texted in, great to hear this voice, never heard him before, talking about science. I've been doing it for eight years, you know. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, I think I think more science in the media will help as well. Um, you might introduce more practical stuff in school, you know, because science is an experimental subject. And it really gets students in Trinity and any university going when they're in a lab, you know, doing real experimental work. For the experimental sciences, that can really get people's attention and get their imagination. So that might be something we might think about. That will take resources and so on. I bet they're thinking about those things. And then I know the science teachers, whenever I went to their meeting, they're always discussing the curriculum, you know, and trying to improve it in various ways. They're a very engaged bunch of teachers. They're very lucky to have them in our community. And then that, that translates into... um in my opinion, my dealings with the public were quite scientifically literate. the Irish. And I think it's because of the good education system, you know, so we're we're doing a good job.
3: Um, Do you think the rise of anti-science ideas such as the anti-vax and flat art movements could become a bigger threat in the future?
2: It's always a threat and it's always there, you know, it's very hard to stop that. Um, A certain percent of people have those opinions and they're entitled to them, we're in a democracy, you know. As long as they don't harm anybody, that's fine. It's up to them really, you know. All you can do is counter it with facts. I mean, remember, the essence of science is data. Never forget that, everybody. Science is built on data. And if a scientist or anybody says something, you can say, well, show me that data that supports what you're saying. That's what attracted me to science, actually, to begin with. I could never be like a uh, a lawyer, which is often, nothing. I'm knocking lawyers, but that's not based on data necessarily, the opinion. you know. Where science, if you come to an opinion in science, you're backing it up with data. And if you haven't got data, you should shut up, right? So if someone says, I've got a theory about this disease that it came from Mars on a iceberg with a polar bear, I'm gonna go, show me the data for that. If you show me, I'll believe you, you know, because it's all about proof and about data. So, so all you can do is say, look, you have your opinion, that's okay, you're entitled to it, show me your data, I'll show you mine, you know? And then if that's why science education is so important. One reason why science education is critical is it's not to turn people into scientists, because very few will become scientists overall, It's to allow people to judge things for themselves, you know, and look at the data, so I don't believe that, you yeah, know, I believe this, based on scientific methods. So, so those are, that's all we can do, really. Will it get more common? Well, certainly social media and the internet doesn't help. I mean, that transmits these things more quickly than when I was younger, you know, that makes it worse. But you might say that's counterbalanced by we can transmit the other information through social media. So, so maybe there's a, a balancing act needed there more and more. You might see a situation in the future where social media, Block certain things more and more, you know, misinformation, especially if it's harmful to others. I think it has a responsibility to do that, I would say, you know. So we we'll would see that that might help to contain some of it. Uh,
0: you released a book before Christmas called Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Science. Uh, what would you say was the main driving force behind writing that book?
2: Well, I, just what I said, James, to be honest. I mean, the mission, I wrote that book before COVID, by the way, because I was asked to do it after I'd done a book called Humanology for Gil. That came out in 2018, I think it was. And then did a kid's book, actually, the great artist. I'm plugging me books here. Buy one every Order them online. Uh, they were they sold well, those two. And then I'll do another one. And this is like maybe probably six months before COVID even began. And then the publisher there, the editor, Sarah, Lydia is her name, who's been really supportive. It was great. She said to me, do a book called Why Science is Great or something like that. You know, So that, that was the initial working title. And then the book is all about how great science is as a way to find things out and to inform us in making decisions about things. So science is our ultimate friend, in my opinion, because and the book goes into very serious, complicated things. that is all evident in our minds. I mean, there's a vaccine chapter. Let's start with that one. You know, and I wrote that long before COVID. That may be the first chapter I wrote because I know all that stuff in spades. And that chapter makes the case for vaccination using science, you see. so. So every chapter is just like that. It takes a topic and the topics I chose, it just interests me. I mean, I happen to be interested in them. And even though I'm not like, for instance, an expert on neuroscience, I can look at things through a scientific lens because I'm a, I'm a trained scientist. you know. So again, I brought that to bear on each topic. And then I wrote the 15 chapters. And then I submitted the book in, um, what have been the end of January, actually, this, this time last year. And then COVID erupted, didn't it? So when I got the proofs of the book, I had to refer to COVID, didn't I? It was easy enough to bring in COVID references. because You could, couldn't not mention it, you know what I
0: mean? And when you were writing this, did you have any particular demographic in mind? Like, who were you really targeting with that book?
2: No, just myself. <laughs> I wrote the book for myself as well, which means the demographic is middle-aged fellas of white males. Um, people in their 50s or so. Um, although I wanted to make it readable, I mean the key thing is, it should be all ages, and not not kids, because the topics are quite serious, obviously enough, you know. But anybody over eighteen, say, not not that the sort of a very salacious things in it, but but any adult who's 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 got a bit of scientific literacy, it was aimed at them really. And then I tried to, uh, I always sort of bring a bit of humour into it, and that's that's what I do anyway. And popular anything. I mean, what well, was a bit, someone said to me? The book had loads of references to bands and books and other. It's like I would taken my, my bedroom wall as a teenager and stuck it into a book. <laughs> that was all
3: Now, in relation to your book, uh, a, fana- a fantastic read by the way. Um, you pointed out the correlation that criminality has to some genes. Um, say now in the future we find that this factor is true and uh, solid. And we are able to detect criminal genes in people. Do you think there should be anything done about it? Sounds well, something almost out of science fiction.
2: That's that's, that's, that's a good point, partner. I'm glad you liked the book. Thanks very much. have got a laugh out of it as well. Um, uh, Well, that, that bit of that chapter, if I if I admit it, it's a little bit flaky. That bit because no, and I discovered that after I'd written it, the damn thing. Someone got in touch said, so, Luke, that stuff on monoamine oxidase that that hasn't quite panned out, you know. So that was a bit of a shame. Now, I try to keep it up to date as possible, but the a, a, mind you, I, I got a couple of, ex- I, what I did as well probably was, I got real experts to read each chapter for me, just in case I was saying something stupid or wide of the mark. And I got a couple of neuroscientists to read that chapter for me. And they, they said, yeah, it's good, but it, maybe some of it's a bit overstated, I suppose. And, and that bit about the genetics of crime, there is evidence a genetic basis, but the trouble is the environmental influence is probably stronger. So you can't just say, oh, you carry that gene and lock you up because of the risk of you committing a crime, you know? So it's really, it's really tricky that one. And, and the great phrase I use in that chapter, which I got from a guy called Matt Ridley, actually was it's it's nature via nurture. In other words, you might have a genetic risk of being a criminal, but you could live a full life without being a criminal unless you're in a certain environment. So the environment you're in brings out that trait, you know. So 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 in other words, you can't really blame people for committing a crime because they're they're doomed yeah. by carrying those genes. You know, I think that'll be a bit much. It's probably saw in that chapter it was used in court cases a couple of times to say someone carried that gene, that's why they committed the crime. And I think that was, wasn't was accepted. Maybe in a couple of court cases, it was it was mitigation. They gave them less of a sentence, maybe. But still, you can't really get off the hook. It wasn't me. It was the money I mean oxidized that made me rob that bank. You know, that would not that, that quite work, I don't think. Although, having that, it's a fascinating area. I mean, there's lots of studies going on. And, of course, if you know, if you, if you see people who've got those genes, you might look after them better. You know, make sure they aren't in a difficult environment. that Exactly. The criminal
3: tendencies in them, you know. so I think it's a really interesting um, area to, to investigate. And just more topic on genes while we're there. What are your thoughts on gene editing and such as on humans and yeah. another point to follow up question to that one? Uh, CRISPR should be kind of publicly available. I'm sure you're aware of it. And yeah. probably Dr. Please, Dr. Zeynick, yeah. the former NASA scientist, founder of Owned. Uh, He kind of wants to make it very publicly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very publicly make it for everyone kind of yeah. cheap. And so everyone can have this technology.
2: Not not sure about that. I don't know. That's a bit dangerous, maybe. I mean, it's still unproven. I mean, obviously, there's massive work going into CRISPR as a way to correct effective genes. Let's start with that. So, so as you probably know, we, there's loads of diseases that are genetic like cystic fibrosis is the classic example, actually, you know. So if you could go into even an egg or a sperm or into a fertilized that can correct that gene, that baby's born now without cystic fibrosis. That's a dream, you know. Now, there's other diseases. There's, um, I think the first one's called uh, some neurodegenerative disease where they are trying to correct with CRISPR, you see. So the, the risk of this is, of course, you might modify another gene by mistake. And then, as you may have seen in China, they made these babies allegedly. That they, 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 what they've done there was interesting. There's a genetic susceptibility to HIV, AIDS. There's a gene. If you carry that gene, you're at higher risk of AIDS. So they modified that gene in embryos, and the babies were born. You know, now we don't know what the consequence. They were, they were absolutely reprimanded or fired because that, you know, in other words, you don't know if it's going to be harmful or not. So, so it's at that stage, whisper. It hasn't quite made it yet into the, into mainstream medicine. The dream, of course, is that we will have genetic engineering to correct all these nasty genes that could rise to horrible diseases. Wouldn't that be brilliant, you know? And there's several diseases like that. So, so that, that's for the future, I think. For the moment, it's still a bit sort of experimental, but a uh, but lot of work going on. There's lots of companies based on CRISPR. Uh, we use CRISPR in my lab to modify genes, just experimentally in, 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 in cells and culture. You know, often in my lab, we would be working on immune genes. today. And how do you know it's important for fighting a virus you modify it with CRISPR and now the immune system doesn't work. So it's a way to prove the importance of a gene in a, in a lab-based system. But you're right away, it. it's a fascinating area, isn't it? Let's face it. I, I think the future will involve genetic modification to help us. Right
1: now you're like the top scientist in Ireland. At uh, what point in your uh, life did you decide that science was the area you wanted to have a career in?
2: Yes, well, indeed. I mean, when I was in secondary school like yourselves, I remember I began to love biology. So when I was in fifth year, actually, with a great biology teacher. And he was like a young guy, I think he was maybe, a, I think we were his first class actually. This, now this is now 1979, to give you an idea. And he would long hair, he torn jeans, he used to slouch into the classroom, and uh, have you ever seen Scooby-Doo, Matt? You ever familiar with that? He was yeah. like Shaggy. That was his nickname, actually, Shaggy. Uh, and he was, we thought he was cool, you know, and he, and he told us about DNA, remember that day? That, oh, that's interesting, I thought double helix was great, you know. And um, another reason how radical he was. And in those days, the schools were even more Catholic than they are now. We said a prayer before each class, you see. And he said, We're not doing that in my class. <laughs> I said, oh, that's interesting. I thought I was like, I was like, 17, that's cool. So it began with that. But having said that, I was still in, my English was my best subject in school. I could have brought the two together now with these books or so, And I might have done something else. But then I realized in sixth year, oh, maybe science would be good to do in, in university because I love biology, you know. And, and I knew there might be a job out of it. I remember seeing him. Um, in a hospital, biochemistry was a job. So maybe maybe I'll get a job as well. was in the back of my mind, slightly. But it mainly because because of interest, I I I was going to do medicine actually, and then I changed my mind as the CAO. I said I don't want to do medicine; it's going to take too long. <laughs> and I got enough points as they were in the time in the mocks to do medicine. But I changed. My mother went mad. I changed my mind and did, did science instead. stuff. Um, and then I went to university, right? Now that that was a great experience. And, and of course, the curse of this pandemic is. Let's hoping you guys go to college. Uh, it will be lifted because you meet lots of people. You get your ideas going. You you make new friends. Your interests begin to grow, and then finally, I got really inspired by the staff in Trinity. There was a few key staff members. I think it's all about that, really. Pe- other people inspire us. That's it. And then in my final year in Trinity, you do. I did biochemistry as, as a degree, but I, I like the molecular basis for life. That began to intrigue me. Can we understand how life works at a chemical level? You know, and um, did a project on Crohn's disease. And that got my attention there's a horrible inflammatory disease in the bowel can we understand more about it and then i was hooked and once I did a little bit of research actually that was it then you do a phd if you want to be a professional scientist you have to do a phd that's like your, your your apprenticeship in a way and that takes three or four years now but then you're doing real research and i did a phd in london i got out of ireland for a bit of adventure did the phd and every day you get more and more hooked basically you know you're going kind to of, I suppose you're also, if you're good at something, I, be, I to be honest, I, be, I realized I'm not bad at this, you know, I'll keep doing it. But even during the PhD, I was wondering, should I leave science and then go in and do finance or something, you know? So it's always a process. That, it's a journey we're all honest about. I think the most important advice to everybody is, and uh, that's it's tough now because it, it, it's not obvious, just pick something you're interested in. And you won't go far wrong then, because if you do something you're miserable with, you'll never do well. Then. Even if you're brilliant, you get fed up, you know? So try and pick something that you're interested in, and that, that was what it was all about for me.
1: Around Christmas time, you released a Christmas single and are also a member of a band. Have you ever considered about uh, having a career in music?
2: Oh no! You, you, yes, you see, the trouble is, I, I, I'm I'm amazed you found that out, but That was supposed to be a secret. <laughs> we, yes, we did. We we did. I, I, I've always played music as my hobby. Now it's very important to have a hobby or something of, of it, a pastime. Whatever you want to call it. You know, I wouldn't call it a hobby. It's more like a big interest. So, so I've always played music, and I was always in bands here and there. You know. And then the latest band are the Metabolics. And that's me and a bunch of medics and scientists. And then we did, we recorded a little song. That, that was done, um, we, we recorded four songs, actually. Wait to you hear this. So we did, you know Brezzy? If you come across now, Brezzy, He did a podcast with me and he said, play three songs with the band. And so we did. And then we did a thing for the GPs of Ireland. There was a sort of special Christmas Zoom for all the GPs. And they asked us to sing a song on it. Now, two of the guys in the band, their wives are GPs. So that, that was why that happened as well. And then, yeah, we, we we played it on, you know, it was great fun. So now that I ever consider music, I did when I was in Cambridge. Eventually, after my PhD, what you do next, by the way, is you do a PhD, then you do a thing called a postdoc. Have you ever heard of that now? That's after you've got your doctorate, you know, go into a real job as a scientist. And they're called postdocs, that's the term we use. It's usually a contract. You spend two or three years on a specific project, in a research institute or anywhere in the world, you know. And I did my postdoc in Cambridge. And when I was there at a band in Cambridge, and we played in pubs at the weekend. And we mainly did sort of, um you know, the Pogues, Here to them, not a whole people, but we were like a poor man's Pogues. Pogues were big in England at the time. So we began doing gigs. We got lots of offers of gigs. And at one stage, we were almost going to go on a mini tour of Europe. I had to make a decision will I go on a three month tour around Europe or will I keep doing the science? Now, at that time, I had just made an interesting discovery in the lab to do with inflammation and the immune system. I said, oh no! I'll stick with the science. Half the guys in the band were on the dole. They were all oh, you bastards! You're letting us down. They've never forgiven me. You know that, that would have been our break for the big time. So I've often wondered if I'd gone on that tour, what would have happened? Would science's gain be music's loss, or vice versa? We'll see. Yes.
4: So uh, just coming off that, can you tell us a bit more about your band? Like what type of music music you like to play and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, I guess we call it L fellas music, Jacob. How about that? <laughs> You know, I'm so we're very eclectic, I tell you. So when I, 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 here's the history of the band. So, so I, I, often at conferences, big scientific conferences, they could be four or five day conferences. I spent my life on the road before the pandemic, by the way, going to all these giving talks, you know, a big like there's a big annual immunology congress and like 10,000 people turn up. You know, it's a big thing every year. We all meet as immunologists and people give talks. I mean, just the latest breakthroughs and so on. There's always a party at the end, you know. For the for the delegates, so a bit of fun, and it's usually a, a DJ. There can be local bands, but and sometimes I've put a band together at the end of the conference. And it turns out many scientists are musical, interestingly. So it's easier to get a button. Now They're all amateurs. Like it's we, we're chancing around. So you're playing music to entertain a big crowd, you know. And then in 2017, I organised a huge conference in the RDS in Dublin. Now, again, nobody would have even heard of this. Can you imagine? It was immunology conference in Dublin. A thousand immunologists came to Dublin. Can you believe it? No interest in the general public. it a different story now. Uh, anyway, at the end of it, I put a band together. I'm in Dublin, I put my own band together, and that's the Metabox. Now, I had two scientists and three medics, but we knew we were Chancellors, Jacob. we were okay, but not great. And the drummer knew a really good young guitarist, who's a professional, and we got him in, Chris Cole, he's brilliant on guitar. And then we found a bass player who was a pro, so they lift us, you know, they help us out. And I thought, they'd, I thought they'd play with us that one, and we paid them, because it's a gig for them, you know? And I thought they'd abandon us, but they loved it because it was different for them. We Our set list was eclectically chosen. So the set list sort of everything from the Beatles to the Stones, but it also has Bill Withers, for instance. It also has, uh, you know, uh, Radiohead, you know, a bit of punk because a couple of the guys like myself love punk stranglers. But the music, the the, the, um, the one I, I kind of led the band, I put it together. the one um, dictum we had was within like 15 seconds, people have to dance to that. But that was because it's a party, you know. You know, like when a song comes up. If you ever had a wedding in the good old days, and like the traditional song for this was something like "Dancing Queen." Oh, they all get up and dance, you know. So that kind of thing. We had that in our minds to make sure it was music to dance to, I suppose. And we did a bit of Thin Lizzy because to the to the American a lot of Americans came to the conference. A bit of Irish, you know, Celtic rock and stuff. So, uh, and then we began doing gigs, and then we got lots of bookings. We've done about six conferences now around the world. We we even got the band got flown to Boston to do a conference once, and it was amazing. Who was your most listened
0: to artist of twenty twenty? Any favorite artists?
2: Ah, oh, that's a great question as well. Well, I've got two sons. You see, one of whom is twenty three, the other was twenty, and they're constantly playing music in our house, mainly on their uh, on Google. You know, uh, I and, and I got into Elbow in twenty twenty. The band Elbow. Have you heard of Elbow? They had a whole load of hits, and I've listened to them a lot. I love some of their stuff; it's brilliant. So i will probably to same as a. Uh, as a big new one that I've been listening to. It's very hard though, kind the music nowadays, because you know, like for example, the stuff that came out in the 60s and 70s is the best, in, in my opinion, anyway, you know. And any band I hear now, I think a bit derivative of that. I like uh, Fontaine's DC, though. That, that album's great, you know. That one's brilliant, I thought. So there isn't there is new stuff, but they all go back to my old favorites. The music you listen to. Between the ages, say, fourteen and twenty, will never leave you. You'll always have that in your. It's like, like plugged into your brain like a memory stick. You know, you'll never escape it.
3: Did you make a pandemic playlist?
2: I didn't. Oh God, no, no, I didn't. I should have done that, shouldn't I? Yeah. There aren't too many songs about viruses. Maybe there's an opening there. I'll have a write a few songs about viruses. They probably wouldn't sell. You never know.
4: Yeah. So coming off of that, um, let's say my song of 2020 was Fake Fine by robert grace because it was about the pandemic and ah. it just related to a lot of people so yeah. if you could pick yeah. us off to describe the year 2020 what would it be
2: that would capture 2020 oh now well yeah. it, has to, it has to be me and monday did you see me playing with him jacob on the on the gaiety did you hear about this one so so there was a new year's eve show in the gaiety theater on rt and they asked me to i was interviewed this part i looking back on the year stuff but then Monday. Asked me to play with him. And I got up on stage and I played with Mundy and the Sharon Shannon and her band. And we did a song called Mexico, which Mundy had written. And that and he picked it on purpose because the chorus is um, you know, uh, promise me this will get better and this will heal in bright weather. And that was a great chorus. We he he suggested uh, his song, obviously, but uh let's do that, he says, because that'll lift people. And so that, that'll be the song for me. And, and and I still keep saying that by the way. We will get out of this pandemic in bright weather when the summer comes, you know. So I have to pick that one, even though i was written a few years ago. That's the one I would, I would pick. Do you know what, Jack? Um, have you heard of Monday? I have. Thank God for that.
0: <laughs> you did a big hit called "July"
2: about oh, ten years ago. I think that would be something like
0: that. Uh, just on the topic of music. When do you think we'll be back? You know, people dancing in clubs, in pubs, listening yeah. to music, having a good time. When can you see total normality?
2: Well, I was asked last week, Seamus. Um, I did an interview in the Irish Times. So they the thing of the Winter Nights Festival thing, and a journalist called Jennifer O'Connell interviewed me, and uh, she said, uh, "When will Coppers reopen?" was the question. I said, "Hopefully never. <laughs> not, um, <laughs> I love Coppers. That's not any. If any um, coppers is fine." Um, so that I tell you one thing: the way we know we're getting somewhere with this damn virus is twofold. One is absolutely going to a big event. Now it could be a music festival, outdoors, probably. Let's face it, or a football match in the Aviva. You know those kinds of things. Now, it's very hard to predict because it's all about the numbers. And over the course of the next three, six months, it won't happen for six months, I predict that for definite, by the way. So it might be towards the autumn. It'll be limited though, it might be 5,000 people max, it'll hurt the outdoors. It'll be a slow stepwise process provided the numbers keep going the way they are. And secondly, we get the vaccine out. The vaccine is the way, to bring things back because if we're 80% are vaccinated, you're 90% protected against this virus, you see, with these vaccines, you know, fantastic. So you can meet up with anybody, really, in any situation, but we're gonna be cautious because there's still unknowns, you know, and there's many unknowns that we haven't even, thought these new variants, you see are our latest concern are like, coming in, you know? but I think it's not unreasonable to think we might have some kind of musical gathering, say, in, in a theater, maybe, or in a venue, you know, pubs might begin to reopen slowly, again, outdoors initially, like beer gardens and so on and there may be indoors with restricted table spacing and so on like like we have in the open for a while there it'll all depend on the numbers though and then the other big metric is can we just get on a flight and go somewhere and and that will come back slowly as well it'll probably involve you need to have a vaccine for some airlines anyway there may be antigen testing at the airport to make sure you're negative before you get in the plane you know so that can be that'll begin as well but i wouldn't be predicting much uh of those kinds of things um it'll take us six months to get to that what, the big the big quite the next big question, but well, the current question is this can we get the vaccine out as quickly as possible? Now the answer will hopefully yes to that. Then you see the numbers go in our favor. Less deaths, less hospitalizations, less ICU admissions. That's April, May, June time. Now, once that begins to happen, the government has to begin relaxing things because the damage the lockdowns are doing are huge for mental health and the economic all kinds of things. So you're balancing one risk against the other. So, it'll be a slow crawl out into the light again. It'll probably begin in May, June, some I predict. So, so it'll be very, very like, I think what happened, by the way, is in March, we're going to lift level five. It'll be, probably be toward, it could be after March 5th. That was the date that was established. Certainly in April, we're going to lift level five. So, we will see a gradual coming back from then.
0: So, there is light at the end of the tunnel, I suppose. Like, you know, there is some bit of an end in sight, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd just like to. Say a massive thank you again, Professor, for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, It's been great having you on. You've given some brilliant information, also, some fun about your music, you know, some good times there, and just a massive thank you from all of us.
2: Well, there's light at the end of the tunnel and hope for better days to come. A massive thank you to Professor O'Neill for giving up his time to talk to us on the podcast. Make sure to check out his book, Forget the Ballocks, Here's the Science, available in all good bookstores.
0: Tune in to future episodes to hear us talk to four Cork hurling stars and Waterford hurling legend Michael the Brick Walsh. Go check out our website, colemanspodcast.com, for our blog section, behind-the-scenes photos, and much, much more. Also, keep up to date with our latest interviews and episodes on our Instagram and Twitter at Coleman's Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everyone.
4: And if we go to Mexico,
3: will it get better? This love will be the good weather. I think it's time to have a go before I met her. I was wrong, and she saved me all these stupid little crimes a thousand million different times to forget.
1: to Mexico Will it be in Newly We watch the evening disappear
3: Into the arms of the